When you design a car, it's not just designing a car and it's a job. It's more like a piece of you is going into the design. It was one of the most complicated projects you could ever imagine because you're absolutely playing with fire, as they say, when you're trying to reinvent or redesign an icon. And we pulled the silk cover off the car. The first question, he said, where's the front and where's the back? The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance, expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Chubb Interviews, which today comes from the Concourse of Elegance here at Hampton Court, and I'm Jodie Kidd. Now, we've had to record all the previous Chubb interviews from our virtual studios, so it's absolutely brilliant to be here in front of a live audience and to speak to our guest in person. Over the last few months, I've been lucky enough to talk to some fascinating people from the world of motorsport, including Derek Bell, David Brabham, Cece Muldoon, Richard Noble and Simon Thornley. Before we introduce our guest, let's have a word with my lovely co-host, Mike Fernie from Drive Tribe. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. So yes, my name is Mike Fernie. I work for Jeremy Clarkson's media company, Drive Tribe. I'm the video presenter on their YouTube channel. And one of my favorite cars is the Maserati MC12. So it's amazing oh, to speak yes. to you today. Frank. We have a little story about that, don't we? <laughs> anyway, not yet, not yet, not yet. Brilliant. So how did you get into cars? Uh, my dad, as a hobby, restores classic cars. So he got me into sort of MGs, Austin Healy's, that sort of thing. And then I grew up as a massive fan of Top Gear. To now work for Clarkson himself, it's been amazing. So yeah. Is he a nice boss? He is, he is. He, <laughs> he knows how to get what he wants, but it's great to work with him. Thank you so much for being here and being part of this interview. So now it's time to interview our incredible guest. So Frank Stevenson is a world-renowned automotive designer with more than three decades, you don't look like that, it looks like only, only a couple, um, of leading design for marks such as Mini, Ferrari, Maserati and McLaren. Frank has been responsible for some of the most successful products and programs in recent automotive history. In 2018, Frank founded the independent design company Frank Stevenson Design, based in London, to collaborate with brands from all sectors of industry creating style, innovation, refinement and performance. Driven by curiosity, lasting design is at the core of everything Frank does. His mission is to apply his unique approach to provide a positive design impact on the lives of as many of us as possible. So Frank, lovely to see you and how are you? And thank you so much for being part of the Chubb interviews. My pleasure. Thank you very much. All the guys here are very jealous. I'm sure it's always a pleasure to see you, Jody. Oh, I'll pay you later. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic to be able to be here today and have another chat with you. We're at the beautiful Hampton Court. So I suppose that you've had enough time to have a walk around and see some cars. You've got the eye for design. Don't think there's anyone as brilliant as you. Is there anything that you've seen that's popped out? Gosh, yeah, I think my eyes have actually popped out of my head. <laughs> I mean, just stepping in, it was very difficult to go from the entrance to the end. Still haven't managed to see everything, but obviously there are some fantastic cars here today. All of them are fantastic, otherwise they wouldn't be here. 
the 275 GTB there. I've seen David's XK120 over there. Absolutely one of my favorite Jags of all time because mm -hmm. it was the starting of the XK series. So I do love the 150, but the 120 was the one that kicked it all it's off. It's beautiful. Um, yeah. The 356 that I noticed over on the other side, the America version, which is very unique and very awesome to see. The F1, the iconic supercar mm -hmm. of the last century, millennium. <laughs> and obviously all the E-types on the other side. There's the E-type, the C-type, the D-type. Those cars, just my knees go wobbly every time I see one of them. So mm. take me all day to get through all of these. But yeah, just lots of stunning cars. When we first introduce someone to the podcast and the interview, we always ask, you know, what their first inspiration was to get into classic cars or cars. I suppose mm. they're classic now. And mine was when I saw an E-Type when I was very little. And apparently yeah. yours is exactly the same. So take yeah. me through when you first spotted that E-Type. Um, that was quite an experience. I think most car designers probably relatively around the age of 10 or so start realizing that cars can have an emotional impact, that they're not just standing objects there, that they're sculptures, rolling sculptures that induce some kind of emotional connection. So my first experience was, although I sound American, I grew up, actually, I was born and raised in Casablanca, Morocco. My mother is very Spanish. My father is very Norwegian-American, I guess you'd have to say, because he's grown up in America. But I had this sort of very technical, cold side combined with a very Latin, artistic mother. So that kind of blend made me probably a little bit more receptive to emotional inputs around me. So I always had this fascination, I guess, this curiosity with everything around me. And I remember it was March 19th, 1969. My father was walking me hand in hand up one of the boulevards in Rue Mohammed V in Casablanca. And there was a Series 1 E-Type parked on the side there. It had just been parked because I remember still to this day that it smelled like gas or oil. And it was doing that tick, tick, tick. And it stopped me not because of that, but because of the sculpture, because of the shape of the car. And obviously in Casablanca, Morocco in the 60s, you didn't really ever come across anything that was very exotic. And this just stood out like, um, I'd like to say sore thumb, but it was a bit prettier than that. <laughs> um, it was absolutely something exotically special. So um, I just couldn't take my eyes off of it. I remember just walking around it. Uh, my father, after about 10 minutes, was starting to get a bit fed up and saying, come on, it's time to go. And the last thing I remember is him pulling me away, and I was crying, and I just didn't want to leave. So that left a huge impact or emotional impact on me, and uh, I think that was the first time I realized that, you know, an industrial object could really have that kind of impact on you. We're surrounded by so many different decades of motoring. Is there a certain time or era within motoring that really appeals to you above all others? Yeah, from a car point of view, obviously. I mean, for me, cars never really became cars per se until really around the 30s, the 40s probably, because that's when we started talking. The late 30s was when we started talking about rolling sculptures, cars on wheels that were more like sex on wheels almost. That started in the 60s, obviously. But in the 30s and 40s, it became important, I think, for cars to have a look, and they became less industrial and more artistically sculptured and that's when people started to give a difference and a character to the design of the car and so it became more about making the car look appealing and and very attractive and art deco stepped in in that age and we started seeing in the late 30s and 40s cars that were more artistic than anything else and they were masters of it i mean you know basically the designs either came from 
Italy or Germany that were that kind of and, – and France – that were very impressive. And I think what they were able to do then really established that era of style, of style and elegance. And you can see it around here today. There's a lot of use of that kind of dual-tone colors, a lot of use of elegant chrome. The shape of the most minute detail is very important. So it was real art, I think. Designers back then weren't really designers. They were more artisans and artists because – the fact is that design now is not what it used to be. If we could do that, that would be absolutely fabulous. But back in the day, it wasn't about meeting regulations and certification, which is, it's turned into a science. It's almost like designers today have to be artists as well as scientists at the same time, which is what's great about design. It's a scientific challenge to make something look appealing. For me, the best decade would probably be the 40s and then moving into the 50s. And then you start getting into the super sports cars of the 60s. Is there one designer that sticks out? For me, it's Malcolm Sayre. But is there one that really sticks out to you as a guy that nailed it back in the day? Yeah, it's interesting what you just said there. Malcolm Sayre was, uh, if you guys don't know, he was uh, responsible for a lot of those beautiful designs of the 50s, early 60s, I guess, of Jaguar. But he was actually not a designer. He was an aerodynamicist, which was even more stunning because he was able to turn out the most beautiful cars in the world, for me at least. And he did that just by designing efficiency and performance. And it's always been said that the best performing vehicles in the world are the prettiest. So that's why you get a lot of beautiful race car designs. They're not interested in making the car look beautiful, but because it performs so well, it has an inherent beauty to it. So at proof in the pudding that you can actually do something not trying to make it look beautiful, but perform really well, and it becomes so attractive in that respect. But from the designers, gosh, it's a whole history of them. My era, I guess, of really starting to recognize designers as designers per se were probably the late 60s when we started getting into guys like Giugiaro, for example, Pininfarina, which is difficult to say because a lot of people work for Pininfarina and Bertoni, obviously. So that era of Bertoni, Pininfarina... Jujaro, obviously, those guys were probably the founding interests of myself getting into design. And now we've moved on. It's become very um, almost like a dream profession to be a car designer. And you're lucky if you do one car in your life. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm going back a little bit more in your incredible career, which I find incredibly fascinating. And every time we get together, I just like, I literally, as we were laughing earlier, I just go and talk because it's just such an incredible life that you've had. But I wanted to go back to Mini, which you were basically in charge of reinventing the iconic Mini for the modern world, which must have been, that's a massive thing to do in an incredible period. Can you tell us about that one? I can't tell you a little bit because there's a lot of it. <laughs> First of all, it was one of the most complicated design missions or projects you could ever imagine because you're absolutely playing with fire, as they say, when you're trying to reinvent or redesign an icon. We all know how important the Mini is, especially in the British culture. It was the car for many families. It got so close and so personal that I think everybody named their Mini something. Maggie, Molly, John, whatever, I don't know. But it was a member of the family. And that car lasted for an unbelievable amount of time in the same way that it was launched, in the same shape. So the, very few cars ever go through such a, a long period of time in their history without being actually modified in one way or another through its development or stages of life cycle. But the Mini was one of those. It lasted up until 1999. But the interesting thing that happened with the Mini was... In the 90s, early 90s, BMW bought it. 
bought the company, Rover Group, of which many was part of Land Rover, Rover, MG, Triumph, Wolseley, if anybody remembers that brand, a lot of them. And they decided just to hold on to a couple of them. The big debate at BMW in the, in the 90s was, what do we do with the original Mini? Do we let it run out its life cycle in 99, which would be the end of its life because of certification, homologation? Or do we try and reinvent the Mini? And therein lied the problem because a German company trying to reinvent a British icon meant that very easily it could be not accepted as an authentic update of the original Mini or a substitute or a, a follower. So it really was a delicate program for BMW to say, yes, we're going to reinvent the Mini. In normal times, when a company tries to reinvent or even try to produce a successor to a, a car, They'll go and produce maybe three new designs of that car, of that model. And one will be, a, um, say, a very futuristic version. One will be far out and one will be in the middle somewhere. Those three proposals would become one of those, perhaps the new car that's going to be shown. BMW, in its effort to make sure that they got it right, in terms of choosing a new design for the new Mini, decided to do 15 new design proposals with 15 designers around the world so that they would get sort of a, a wide perspective of what the... 21st century Mini could look like. So that broke the budget, but still they had a wide perspective of what all the cars could look like or what the new Mini could look like. On the day of the shootout, which is when we launched or showed all the 15 cars, we had everything from one extreme, obviously, to the other extreme. One car that looked like it had just been scaled up from the original Mini to the opposite. It wasn't a Mini. It was more like from outer space. But the one I did was kind of in the middle. It was like the true successor of of what the Mini could have looked like had it evolved every generation. So I had a month to design it. The first week I designed what could have been the 69 Mini. The second week I did what could have been the 79 Mini, 89 to third. And then the last week I did the 99. So what I did was build a design evolution of the original such that it would look like that had it evolved after 40 years. So yeah, that car came out in Paris in September of 2000, the motor show there and huge success right from the start. We kind of expected it to. I'd spent the last five years seconded to the Rover studio in Gaydon and uh, worked with the Rover team there to turn the clay model that I designed into the real car. And right from the marketing research clinics that we had all over the world, people were saying, this is absolutely fabulous. This is, uh, we don't know what car it is, but I'll buy it. So it came out and it started becoming the it car, I think, around the world did a really good job and you can see today how successful it's been and you know the factory is built up and uh, it's created a lot of jobs and uh, dealerships and everything so it's done very well. So following on from you reinventing the Mini we've had a new Ford Bronco come out and new Defender. What are your opinions on those designs and do you have a favorite reinvention that's not your own? That's a hard one to say, too, because, again, how faithful do you want to stay to the original one? How far do you want to push into the future with the successor to it? And you have to achieve a balance where you don't lose the old customers, but you still gain sort of a younger generation of people who are getting into that segment there. So I think the Bronco is one of the cars that we don't really recognize it too well over here in Europe, but it's a U.S. icon, absolutely massive sales figures and i think that car the reinvention of it if you look it up it's been done really really well just enough to recognize it it's its roots its genetic dna or heritage but enough to put it into a league of its own in the future kind of uh and and one thing i really hate not to go off on a different tangent the use of the word retro design that is one of the worst 
things for designers to think he's designing something that's retro. It's almost like we're paid the big bucks to design something that's in the future. And suddenly we're just going backwards with retro design. What is important is to take the emotion of the past and use the technology of the future and design that car such that it still is recognizable, kind of like your great grandfather, but it's you, you're faster, bigger, stronger, more intelligent, all that. And so that's not really retro, that's just moving the game on and recognizing where you came from, but just pushing it further into the future. So I don't think any of those cars would ever be correctly called retro, per se. So I think we all love a Ferrari, don't we? And you were the man in charge of how every Ferrari looked like at one point. Um, which cars did you work on? And are there any that really stand out to you? I started as the director of design for Ferrari and Maserati in July 2002 and throughout the rest of the decade, pretty much. But the cars that I started out with, the first car I even saw that was new or being developed at Ferrari, I didn't even recognize it as a Ferrari just because of the length of it. I think it's the longest Ferrari they've ever made in terms of overall length. And that was the 612 Scaglietti, which now has moved on. But the first car that I actually got my teeth in, or my pen into, um, is the replacement for the 360 Modena, which then became the F430 Italia, I guess you could have called it, but F430 uh, Ferrari. And that was the first shot I had at developing a Ferrari, which was kind of tough because you have to take an already existing beautiful Ferrari and make it still stay recognizable as a Ferrari, but move the game on. And with Ferrari, that's that's kind of tough. So the F430 kind of did that. It proved to be successful. And the next car I did at Ferrari was the, we call it the FXX Super Enzo. So it was basically a outright crazy version of the Enzo. Yeah. And that was fun. Um, it, lo yeah. it looked fun. What was it? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a handful to drive, but the customers were basically giving their input to the factory. And that car was really interesting to design because it was very limited. It was limited to 19. Clearly, looking after a brand like Ferrari is a huge responsibility. So how do you make sure that you remain modern without stepping on years and years of history? That's the hard part. You have to step on that history. You actually have to get caught up in it. You have to understand Ferrari for what it is. And, you know, you see that problem in this day and age. You see a lot of designers coming in with a bit of responsibility and shaking the company up and moving away from what the company's recognized at. But again, with Ferrari, the responsibility is, and, and without being too arrogant, because you do have the power to be a little bit arrogant when you're designing a new vehicle and to put your stamp on it. But the history of the company and what it represents and the loyalty of the customers and the brand and the values, you have to remember that you do have to keep that Ferrari look, that Ferrari feel in, in the design. And it's unique enough. I mean, people say, oh, a lot of cars look the same. Nothing looks like a Ferrari. I mean, you know, and, and it's Italian, and you can almost say that's what Italian design is, but put it next to Lamborghini, and a Lamborghini looks like it's been designed by origami almost, you know, folded sheets of paper. It's so hard-edged, whereas a Ferrari has that real sensual, full feeling of it, but still a lot of tension in the surfaces. So a lot of people ask us, I was talking about that today, is how do you come up with a design that looks futuristic every time you design a car? So what is the future? And it's hard to say what a car will look like 
10 years from now because we can't predict it. We don't have that power to see into the future either. But we can sort of look at basic technology and what it allows us to do, and that moves itself on. So we're starting to produce cars that maybe have a certain number of fewer panels on the car, fewer cut lines. So that improves the quality of the car. You can make it much tighter. The gaps are closer, things like that. But I think the overall task and responsibility of anybody who ever touches the design of a Ferrari is to remember that it has to look immediately like a Ferrari without obviously seeing the badge on it. And it's not just the color, it's the surface language, how we treat the highlights in the car. If it's a mid-engine, you make it look like it has a mid-engine. If it's a front engine, typically it's a front mid-engine, but you show that Ferrari quality in it. It's not to say that we shouldn't change things in the design details, but you have to treat them with some kind of respect that associates it kind of with what came before. So, yeah. And on the other end of the scale, you then had to create a whole new design language at McLaren. Is that job really exciting and easier, or is that actually really difficult because it's so open? I think it's actually easier to design a, a McLaren than it is to design a Ferrari. It's kind of like if you were going to draw somebody's face. If you sat down and said, I'm going to draw somebody's face. To try to make that drawing look like somebody is much more difficult than just to draw a face. So with the Ferrari, you have to make it look like a Ferrari because it exists. The brand language is there and you, you have to sort of evolve it. But with McLaren, it was all about just coming up with a new face. And of course, that in itself is not easy because, as they say, just about everything's been done in automotive design. But there are, if you look at it in, in a certain designer way, there are design inspirations that are rarely used to come up with a new automotive design language. And I have a fascination with nature since I was very young. And I always thought that a fast car should look like a fast animal. You know, there's a reason why a fast animal looks the way it does. You don't see high BMI, if we want to call it that way, animals that go really fast. So the whole thing with trying to start up a new design language for McLaren was hitting on a philosophy that we called shrink-wrapped. In other words, don't add anything that doesn't need to be there in terms of surface volumes. The philosophy of creating the design language at McLaren was all about having your hard points, which is where your suspension points are at, your visibility angles, the engine, the exhaust, all those were kind of laid out as the internal organs of the car. That's what engineering gives you. And you basically have to clothe that design or that, that engineering package. So what better way to design a car than to take a sheet, a bed sheet, and throw it over that chassis or that package, that engineering package, let it settle. So where you don't have any high points, that's where the metal can go, or the surface of the body can go. And then you smooth that out a little bit. And basically, you've created design language without very much effort at all. But it's very efficient because you take out air or shrink wrap it where you're allowed to take out surface metal. And that completely pushed it away from anything else out there because car designers tend to push it a little bit too far by putting more surface into shapes than they need to put in there. So if you can actually suck the air out, vacuum form it or, or shrink wrap it, you'll start to have your own design language, which is what a fast cheetah looks like, for example. They all look kind of hungry and you know aggressive a little bit and, and tight. You know, you can almost see the skeletal structure underneath them. That's what designing McLarens became, minimizing the actual surface area of the car. How many McLarens were you part of the design team for? Uh, I started in 2008, which is when we were just starting out with a carbon tub, and we were putting a, a body on top of that carbon tub. 
<clears throat> which is what made McLaren what it was. And that first car that we brought out uh, shortly thereafter was called the MP4-12C. Mm-hmm. Then after that, we came out with a P1, which was McLaren's calling card for the ultimate technology for a hypercar. And we just hit it right because that was when the, the Holy Trinity came out with 918 Porsche and the LaFerrari. Ferrari, LaFerrari, I have trouble saying that. <laughs> um, and the P1. So those were the first three hybrids in the hypercar segment. Mm-hmm. And probably never happened again, but it was absolutely amazing to, to see those three cars on the market. But the P1 was a fantastic uh, experience because Ron Dennis, you can't imagine anybody wanted to be more in control than Ron. Um, at the same time, when we did the P1, he just gave us a free card to say, okay, design the car and show it to me in 12 months when you're ready. Or actually, if that's not in 12 months, whenever it is, just show me the car when you're ready to bring it out. So we worked on the car for 12 months on the new shape for the P1. And I remember the day of the presentation to Ron of what the P1 was going to be. So it's a full-size clay model. It was painted, looked like the real thing. But Ron had never seen it up to that point. And I remember having him in the showroom and we pulled the silk cover off the car and Ron's jaw just basically dropped because the first question he said, where's the front and where's the back of this car? <laughs> and if you look at the P1, you'll notice that the back of the car is extremely low. But that's because we did the shrink wrap on it. We didn't need material there, so we just took it off. And um, he was a little bit aghast that I said, Ron, that's absolutely the, the best reaction we could have because I want you to see this as how couture of automotive design. You know, how couture, as you know, is not normal. And you have to push the limits in terms of what you're presenting there. And it's uh, oftentimes not seen as beautiful it's just pushing the limits and um, I had to explain it that way to Ron and I think he saw the intelligence or the reasoning behind it and said okay I you know I could easily kill this project here today because I really don't understand what you guys have done here (laughs) but we'll try to sell them and if we don't have uh, success with that it's you know off with your neck and you'll be out of here but we did it and it went out very well came out and was very successful very mclaren like so i did that obviously with our team newly formed team we have probably the smallest design team in the industry smallest by a huge number of designers in mclaren at least during that time than any other comparable car company where you would probably have 50 a minimum of 50 people in the design department mm-hmm. producing just a normal range of cars and mclaren we were about five designers in total in the design department so we were doing a full range of cars by then preparing the the sports car the supercar and the hypercars and uh, yeah with very few very passionate intensive people but we did the uh, p1 then we did the uh, the 570 and then we did the obviously the 650 the 675 lt and the last car I was there for was a 720 and uh, 720S. And after that, I decided to move on. Is there a favorite? Which of your children are your favorite? <laughs> I know. Tough, tough question. Um, I, I mean, I absolutely would give a finger or something to, to have a P1. But then if I didn't have to give a finger, then I'd rather have a 720S probably. Yeah, no, beautiful. Um, the 720 is just a car that does everything right. And it does it so well. You know, and uh, it looks extreme. It'll probably look extreme for the for a couple more generations of cars. So it's kind of hard to beat a car that sets the level that high as the 720 does. Out of all of the cars that you've designed over your 30 amazing 30 years, 
Is there a favorite there? Yeah, I think you might know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, when you design a car, it's not just designing a car and, and it's a job. It's more like a piece of you is going into the design. It's not a piece. It's actually you because you don't design a car overnight. It takes at least a year of your life, at least, probably more like two, of your life of constant attention, constant ups and downs, fights with different departments and everything. It really tears away your soul and it becomes almost like creating a child for you. You really, really, really do become emotionally attached to that development phase of your, of your baby. And all these people that say, oh, it's, you know, it's a team of people working on the design, it's not. The bad cars are the ones that have teams of people working on them, designers, because they get that real different look in different areas of the car. Whereas the best cars that are designed today are one person's job. And he throws the same energy at the front of the car as he does at the rear, as he does on the side of the car. And it looks cohesive and speaks one language. So it's rare to get a really beautiful car with a big team working on it. In the early 2000s, after I'd started with Ferrari Maserati, I got that once-in-a-lifetime chance to design a car being in the right place at the right moment when Maserati decided we have to come up with a, a sports car that reflects our heritage. And obviously we want to go back into racing, but we can't go back into Formula One. That's Ferrari's territory. So they're brother and sister at that time. So we have to come up with a car for a different segment or a racing class. And let's go for the FIA GT class, which is the endurance race, long distance racing classes. Those are kind of like the group C cars of the late 60s and early 70s. They were gorgeous cars. They did the 24-hour races, 12-hour races. And so Maserati's idea was if we get into this segment, to this class, we have to win. We can't just try to win. We have to be absolutely at the top. To compete in that class, you would actually have to have on the road 25 homologated, at least 25 homologated road cars. And then you could turn that into a race car and race in this segment here. So Maserati, in their smart Italian way of thinking, was let's build a race car and make 25 road cars out of it instead of the other way around. So the Maserati MC12 project started, which was going to be Maserati's return to racing. And we would also have to turn that into 25 homologated road cars for the road. So that's the task I was given. I was given the Ferrari Enzo chassis to work off of. So that was basically including the engine the seating arrangement, but then we pushed the front wheel forward quite a bit and we were able to extend the wheelbase. So automatically the car became much bigger and had a heck of a lot more presence on the road than its cousin, than the Ferrari Enzo. And uh, people mistakenly always say that the Ferrari Enzo and the Maserati MC12 are just the same car. By far, it's not, by far. Uh, the engine was changed, the suspension, the gear, everything was basically changed. But we did start with the Ferrari Enzo platform. So what happened was um, I went to Dallara, which is just down the road near Parma from Marinello. And I worked at the uh, Dallara Racing Factory and with their engineers for four straight months. And we produced the MC12 racing car. So the body and suspension, I, didn't, I just did the body but I did also the interior. And so that car had to be turned into a road car. So then we did another four months of work to make it into 25 road cars, which then had to be sold for a lot of money. We found 25 buyers, sold the car, and then we had to take the car to the FIA in Paris to get it approved for the racing season. And when they saw the car and how we'd actually produced a race car and made a road car out of it, they said, 
no, that's not right. You guys have come in through the wrong door. We have to say that next year's racing regulations will only allow a car to be five meters long. And your MC12 is five meters 15 long. So you're too big. You can't race next year. And we're, why didn't you tell us this before? So we had to go back to the drawing board, cut the length off the MC12 to get it down 15 centimeters to five meters to the limit. And then we have to go out and find another 25 buyers. And we didn't tell anybody that we'd actually shorten the car. So there are 50 Maserati MC12s out there. And nobody has ever been told if they have the long nose or the short nose. Yeah, and nobody can really tell. It's been done very well. But it's, it's a fantastic thing to know that somebody has a car that they don't know if it's that first batch or the second batch. It's kind of like whiskey that, you know, is it the first or is it the second? It makes all the difference. Yeah, so the Maserati MC12 was sort of a, a fantastic design that I really enjoyed because I was able to do a race car and a road car, and that kind of opportunity doesn't come twice in your lifetime. And that it was actually so successful in its racing career over a long many seasons. It was consistently a, a world championship winner. Took a long time. Yeah. <laughs> AMC 12 was we my can, Honestly, I, you my could talk all day about the MC 12. Yeah, I was very beautiful. lucky to drive it. You I, did drive it? Yeah, did yeah. Did you race it? No, ah, I was I was very much there because I was racing for Maserati at the same time. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember, so I was in the baby version. But I got to drive it on the road and I had um, brings a smile, literally, yeah. from ear to ear. What a beast. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it that arse was like. Well, it's <laughs> it was just like the fattest arse. So, Frank, we're moving into an age of electric cars now, and it's a completely different prospect. You don't need to fit an engine in, for one thing. How do you think cars will look in the future when they're all electric? What do you think will change the most? What I would love to see is a super clean ICE engine that uses biofuel and makes all that noise and gives you that visceral feel of a mechanical engine. And the electrics are losing that. Not that it's a bad thing, obviously, and you're going to get a lot more performance and ecologically friendly, perhaps, if you can do something with the batteries and creating that energy in the first place. But as soon as we get past electrics, I think we'll be moving to hydrogen anyways. I see electric as a stopgap solution. They don't want to talk about it yet, but as soon as they can get hydrogen to work and just chuck out some water instead of anything else, that'll be the best solution. But I think that what's happening now with the electric side of things is interesting, but it's almost creating now a performance level, especially in our type of supercar vehicles, where you can't really appreciate that amount of performance anymore. It's like, okay, so what's the difference between 1.5 and 2 seconds to get to 60? It doesn't make any difference there. I think what's more important is the safety aspect of driving, how we can move electrics along from a different point of view. The electronics on the inside of the car are much more important in terms of being able to avoid accidents. If we're going to autonomous driving at some point in the future, I think, honestly, I don't think it's going to happen in our lifetime because I just think it's too complicated to get all the cars on the road to speak to each other. It's not like what we see in the sky when we see uh, birds and fish in the water all moving at the same time. There's a scientific explanation for that. I think it's a sixth sense that we can't really develop yet. But the thing with autonomous driving is level five probably isn't going to be here very soon. So the fact that you just let go of the steering wheel and let the car itself do everything for you. There's a lot of moral decisions that we know have to be uh, developed and it's legal, it's not legal. It's too complicated, I think. So unless we have all the cars on the road speaking to each other at the same time, uh, which is very difficult um, and predicting things that probably are very difficult to predict, I don't think it's, we're going to see that type of uh, future anytime soon. But what we will see is that move, obviously that shift towards 
electric cars, hybrid electric cars. I, for one, don't look forward to it because it kind of normalizes the cars into a, a certain segment where you'll have speed or you, you know, available power very quickly and all that. But it takes one of the senses away from the body of the car. It's almost like a person operating with four senses. Okay, he's higher, he's, he's more intelligent, works more efficiently, whatever. But you're losing a very important factor of the car, which is that control that the human has. But what are they going to look like in the future? There's two solutions. Either the car does everything for you, drops you off at work, goes into repair, or fills itself up or charges itself up, or does certain things while you're working, and then comes back and picks you up and takes you home, which is very boring. Or else your car basically lets you choose if you want to drive it or if it wants to drive itself. But yeah, I think what I'm just trying to say is that I'm, I regret the move towards electrics. I, I, I like it in the sense of what it can do for us, but I just don't want to leave cars, that feeling that cars give us today, behind. I think that's why we're such kind of huge fans of classic cars, because yeah. that feeling you get when you get out the other end, if you get there, because sometimes mm. you don't, yeah. uh, you know, just irreplaceable. So after this incredible history of cars designing some of the most iconic cars of our era what's next i know that you now started up the frank stevenson design mm. is that still automotive are you going um, other places where's that wonderful mind going to now yeah i've I, it's what we started out with i've been doing it for a long time now 30 years and it's not that it's gotten boring it gets more exciting every project i've ever worked on whether it's um a to B car or a hypercar. Each one is as fun as the other one. It's just the joy of designing something that eventually will make it to the road, make people happy, and moving the game on. That's always been an objective. But I think after doing it for that long, I was at a point in 2017, 2018, where I thought, okay, it's either redo again another generation of uh, high-end cars that very few people get to enjoy. What I really want to do is be able to run my own design a studio where I can be the marketing director and choose my projects and, and design them to the level that I want to design them to. So I, I established my own company, which ran on four principles. One, that it basically had to be best of the best, so not necessarily the most expensive or anything like that. It just had to be in whatever segment I was designing that product for. It had to be the best in that segment. The second one was it had to introduce new technology and innovation. So it had to be adding something that hadn't been there before. It's not just another product in the market. The third one was that it's that thing we always say um, that we're starting to use very often now is uh, the circle economy or environmentally friendly. So it had to be absolutely um, eco-friendly, I guess you could say, so reusable. And that's becoming more important, more relevant in design. And the fourth was it had to be inspired by biomimicry, study of using nature as an inspiration for the science of the design. So those projects, as long as it met that target, then I would be able to consider doing that project or not. And one of the first things that I uh, was approached with after leaving McLaren was to do an EV toll aircraft, which is the new age of mobility that we might not understand yet, but it's coming very soon, believe me. And it's the era of flying taxis. So it's almost like an Uber, but not for the ground, it's for the sky. Low-flying altitude aircraft, electric, vertical takeoff and landing, incredibly efficient, but they're basically moving taxis that take up the third dimension at a rate that is uh, probably about half the price of what a Uber would cost. So very safe, very efficient, very fast, 
and brand new shapes in the in, in the sky that we've never never ever seen before. So don't expect airplanes these to look like airplanes. They're much more advanced. Uh, for the longest time, engineers have designed airplanes. And uh, this is the first opportunity or first time that a car designer, yeah, originally a car designer, is able to design something that flies. I've always viewed airplanes as being a fuselage with wings attached to them and wondered why. And people say, well, it's the aerodynamics. Yeah, but if something has to be aerodynamic, the most efficient shape is actually not a bird. It's a, it's a fish. Because if you think of fish, it has to go through much denser yeah, medium. Why is the shape of a fish so efficient or how is it more efficient so the first aircraft i've worked on is for a company based in uh in germany and the work the design of the vehicle if you looked up and saw it you could almost swear that the head of it looked like a hammerhead shark and the body of it looked like a manta ray i mean a hammerhead has wings on its head for a reason for a very good reason they're like canards on a, on a race car and uh they stabilize the car or the plane so basically if you can imagine a hammerhead shark that blends into a manta ray. That is probably the new shape of these, type of new shapes of these new vehicles that are going to be flying in the sky and taking us from A to B very quickly. I was telling somebody today, if you have a client, for example, in, in London, and you want to take them to lunch in Oxford and be back in an hour, you could easily do that at 180 miles an hour as the crow flies. Wow. Low altitude, you just catch it at the top of a hotel building in uh, downtown London mm -hmm. and uh, fly into Oxford, land, have your lunch, come back very quick. How far away is this? Uh, we're in 2020, so I'd say about four years off. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It won't pollute our skies with lots of them. It'll be, you know, controlled, certified, takeoff and landings obviously are timed and everything, but you have your own corridor and they'll be very, very safe. That's the absolute overriding uh, characteristic of these planes um, is the safety. Planes are the safest way to travel. Yep. These have to be even safer. Right. So it's kind of you're, you're moving to the air now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. one direction. One direction. Yeah. What are the others? Go on. Quickly uh, before see, we've quickly, got to go. Yeah. <laughs> one of the more interesting and fun projects I'm working on will be seen next year. It will be the first two cars to race on the moon. On, on the, the moon, moon? On the lunar surface. Are you so serious? I thought it was bizarre also, but if you think about it, what is the best way to develop a new vehicle to go on the moon surface in 2024 when they return? It's the way we get inspired in automotive design is by racing cars, racing car technology. You filter that down into the road cars. And so by the same means as developing a race car on the moon and using what you learn from that technology and applying it to, say, let's call it the moon rover, you'll be able to bring things in that have developed at the highest end uh, and brought into that. So it is very important. Um, there hasn't been a lot of development in the sense of how to make the moon rover incredibly efficient and uh, performance-wise and safety-wise. And a lot of this development will be reflected in, in that vehicle. So, Frank, during this series, we've been running a special theme called One Piece at a Time, where we get to ask our guests to select one prize automotive possession that means a lot to them. So, can you tell us what your one piece would be? Yeah, I have to say that from a designer point of view. I have something that enables me to be in the automotive world, to do what I do, to do what I love, and that has to be, without question, the BIC 
pen. <laughs> I cannot live without it. <laughs> I thought you were going to have like some fancy pencil or pen. Is it literally you do all your designs like with a big pen? Yeah, it's astounding. I mean, I've designed Ferraris, Maseratis, have you? McLarens with, with this, this little guy here. That's amazing. Uh, it works. Yeah. It sure does. Yeah, it's iconic for me. I tell you what, I would have never have guessed that one. <laughs> I mean, of course I would have because you're the people. designer, but not a big one. No, it's the best pen for sketching, absolutely. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Um, honestly, I could sit and listen to you, which I will do, hopefully, Thanks. for the Thanks, rest Jenny. of our lives, hopefully. of all the most incredible endeavours that you're up to. Thanks. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me, and thank you guys for listening. It really is such an honour every time I get to see you, and thank you, Mike, so much yes, for thank you. being up on stage i look forward to our next meeting we'll meet soon thank thanks, you thanks, so Jody. much again Cheers, you've been Mike. an absolute Cheers. superstar thank you thanks. and to the listeners of this podcast we'd love it if you could share your own one piece at a time you can put your pictures on instagram or facebook or you can send them to us on email just search for chubb that's c-h-u-b-b collector car or for email classic cars at chub.com or browse chub.com forward slash the interviews a big thank you to george morley who sent a picture of his grandfather and his dad on top of this 1896 whitney steam car it's a fantastic picture and that was basically his inspiration to get into the automotive world a big thank you to our live audience here at the Concourse of Elegance at Hampton Court, as well as those listening to this special episode of the Chubb interview series, brought to you by Chubb, who share our passion for classic cars. There'll be another episode very soon. To receive every episode as it's released, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please review and spread the word. And don't forget to email us your stories about your most loved classics. I'm Jodie Kidd. Until next time. Bye. The Chubb Interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882.